Hello and welcome back to Renoites. It has been a couple months. My name is Connor McQuibby. I am your host for Renoites, the local podcast where I talk to all sorts of folks who are doing interesting or important work in the area. We're coming up on about three years of episodes, actually, of Renoites. We're somewhere around 120-something episodes, and I'm so excited to be back with a brand new season. I have 10 new episodes on the way. Several of them have already been recorded. I have some fantastic guests this season. It's always really great getting to meet all kinds of people in town who are making a difference, who are notable, who are interesting. This has been a fantastically rewarding project for me personally, and I hope for you as a listener. Today's guest on this first episode of the new season is Marie Baxter. She is the CEO of Catholic Charities of Northern Nevada. Most people are familiar with Catholic Charities for providing a variety of services, specifically St. Vincent's thrift shops and the dining room and food pantry that supplies a ton of food for so many people in this community, including most of the food at the CARES campus, serving thousands of meals every single week. A really fantastic conversation with Marie about poverty in northern Nevada, about the work that Catholic Charities does and have done for decades in this area, the effects of the pandemic, how things have changed, especially for the unhoused community here in Reno in the last few years, the changes that have come to Catholic Charities because of that, and a new program that they've just launched, which is geared towards helping people break the cycles of generational poverty. So having people be the the last one in their family to experience poverty and to increase the economic mobility of families in this area. A couple quick updates about this season of Renoites before we get to the episode. I'm so grateful for the folks that support this show on Patreon. One of the things that allows the show to exist is the generosity of contributors who throw a little bit of money to help make the show financially viable, financially sustainable. A couple things I'm hoping to do this season for patrons is bonus content. So there's a couple questions at the end of the interview just for patrons. You can listen to that at patreon.com slash renoites or the link in all of my social media or just go to renoites.com. I have different levels that you can support the show at from as little as $3 a month. If you contribute to the show, I want to make sure that you are getting what you'd like out of it. So if you have suggestions or ideas or other ways that you would like for patrons to get additional benefits, let me know. I know some creators do bonus content. Some have more interaction with listeners. I'm always pretty available if you want to email me or reach out. But if there are ways for me to encourage you to support the show financially, please let me know what you would like for me to do. It has been really great doing the show, and I'd like for it to be able to continue to go on. So thank you so, so much to my current patrons for the show. And if you'd like to learn more, you can do so again at patreon.com slash renoites. Also, a special shout out to the National Automobile Museum. I've recorded a handful of episodes of this season at the podcast studio in the National Automobile Museum. It's such a cool space. I went there once when I was a kid years and years and years ago, hadn't gone for maybe 20 years. And then going back to the museum, I had forgotten how huge it is. So they have a ton of cool cars there. If you haven't been to the auto museum, check it out again. And if you have friends or family or guests in town, keep that in mind is like a cool thing to do in town. It's pretty rad. And maybe you haven't thought about it in a while. So think about checking it out again. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to record in the new podcast studio they have there. 
If you don't already, be sure to follow me on social media. I am on Facebook and Instagram, mostly on Instagram. That is my most common social media. You can find me very easily at Renoites on both of those platforms. And if you have suggestions, feedback, ideas for guests, any reason you want to get a hold of me, that is very easy to do as well. Send me a message on Instagram or email me, Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. I love to hear from listeners and would appreciate your feedback and thoughts so that I can make the show the best it can possibly be. Again, this is a brand new season. I am so grateful for all the folks who have listened and continue to listen. Tell your friends, tell your family, spread the word. I would love for the show to continue to grow in 2024. And with that, this week's first episode and our first guest of the season, Marie Baxter from Catholic Charities of Northern Nevada. Marie Baxter from Catholic Charities of Northern Nevada. Welcome to Reno Whites. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. So this is the first episode that we're recording of this new season. I don't know if it's going to be the first one released, but we are recording now in the National Automobile Museum podcast studio, which is new for me to be in a different space. So that's really cool to have this space to work in. So welcome to the Auto Museum. Thank well. you. Such a fun place to come and uh, talk about all things Nevada. So yeah. I love it. Most people are familiar with St. Vincent's, I think is the Thing that I associate with Catholic Charities in Northern Nevada. And I want to talk about kind of how you came to work in the organization and all the different services you do. But can you talk just initially about what Catholic Charities of Northern Nevada is, like the organization itself? So we are the largest sort of non-governmental provider of human services in our community. And that's in breadth and depth of services, as well as the geography that we cover. So when we say Catholic Charities of Northern Nevada, we really mean Northern Nevada. And we even have some programs that go as far down as some of the, the counties, even into Southern Nevada. We're one of the oldest, you know, provider of services as well. Our Catholic Charities has been in existence for over 80 years, starting with, you know, the original St. Vincent Soup Kitchen, which we still operate, and some other different programs, but always focusing on how are we helping people who are struggling, you know, whether that's with food or shelter or clothing or helping them on a pathway to sustainability. And, and again, that's in a lot of different programs, particularly in our sort of modern, you know, machination that we have now. It's always just been about how do we meet people where they are and help them on that journey to where hopefully they're not uh, struggling in some of the ways that they're struggling when they encounter us the further, for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know there's like a broad range of services. Can you talk a little bit more about Catholic Charities in general? So this is kind of mm -hmm. like an affiliate of a larger organization, or how does how does that work? What's the kind of history of Catholic Charities in general? So every diocese, which is basically, you know, like a, a district of, you know, Catholicism. So every diocese, so we're in the Diocese of Reno, we have two dioceses in our state, the Archdiocese of Las Vegas and the Diocese of Reno. Every diocese is who sort of operates the Catholic Church within that area. And each diocese also has a Catholic charity. So we are a 501c3, and we operate as a true nonprofit, just like, you know, the Food Bank of Northern Nevada or Children's Cabinet or, you know, anyone within that space. But we're affiliated as the charitable arm of the Diocese of Reno. So there is an entity called Catholic Charities USA, which is an overarching entity that we are a member of. So it's not like the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts where we're sort of a subsidiary of Catholic Charities USA. We're a member um, by choice. You know, we some Catholic Charities participate in that, that membership and some do not. Um, but it provides us with a tremendous network of other Catholic Charities leaders, a lot of support at the national level in looking at best practices, et cetera. So it's really, 
I'm actually the vice chair of the, all the, they call them diocesan directors, but everyone that's a leader, Mm. um, the executive committee of the diocesan directors for Catholic Charities USA. And uh, so I have a real perspective on the support we receive in that capacity. But our, sort of the long and short of it is, is our affiliation is really with our bishop, Bishop Mugenborg right here at the Diocese of Reno, and then working with our different parishes. But we are a faith-led entity. We are not what I call a faith-based entity. Mm-hmm. So all are welcome at Catholic Charities. We provide services to, to everyone, regardless of you know, what beliefs they may have. We don't discriminate in any way. And, uh, and that makes us, yeah, you know, again, comparable to sort of other nonprofits, which I love because we just want everyone who has a need to know that our doors are open to them and we will work with them um, to the best of our abilities to help them, you know, with whatever it is that they need. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the immediate services. Like we said, the the soup kitchen, which is, you don't call it a soup kitchen anymore. It's the the dining room or something along those lines, right? Can you talk a little bit about the the most obvious, most immediate services that you provide for the people who are most in need in the moment? So we serve about 35,000 people a month at our Catholic Charities. Um, and the majority of that is through food services. So the St. Vincent's Dining Room, which is Entering its 62nd year, I believe, it's been around a very long time. It's a a space where we literally are the only hot meal provider in the community here in the Reno-Sparks area where anybody, anybody can walk in and get a hot meal, you know, between 1130 and 1 during the day. And we have our amazing chef who prepares things. It is truly like an episode of Chopped because we get a lot of donated product and, of course, we purchase product as well. But you never know what you're going to have. And so when you're feeding about 1,200 people a day mm-hmm. with a mixed bag of ingredients, it's really, it's fun. It's actually really delightful. But the food is, you know, really high quality, focusing on having good proteins. We always have fresh fruits and vegetables or salad. But keeping in mind that a lot of our clients have a lot of dental issues. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of our things are soft, approachable, high calorie, but they're, you know, they're not going to be, you know, a lot of foods that would be really challenging for people to eat. So it's striking that balance. The dining room is, like I said, one of our original programs. And connected to that is our St. Vincent's Food Pantry and Wellness Center. And that is where most people encounter Catholic Charities, whether it's at the corner of 4th and Valley at our main campus, or, you know, out in Duckwater outside of Ely, or, you know, wherever we may be, we provide 45 to 65 pounds of food to individuals in a family. So it increases depending on the number of people in your mm-hmm. family. But we really focus on what those fresh foods would be. So you get a box that will be full of fresh fruits and vegetables, dairy products, meats, cheeses, all those things that oftentimes are good for preparing a meal. Then we supplement with some shelf-stable items as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit sustainable. And then a couple of years ago, uh, this has always been a dream of mine and was something I'm so proud of for our Catholic Charities. We open what we call client choice pantries, and we have three of them. There, Actually, there's four of them. There's one on Moana Lane here in Reno. There's one in Sun Valley. There is one in uh, the North Valleys, kind of by the Rayleighs out there in mm-hmm. Golden Valley. And then we opened one in Winnemucca, which is uh-huh. the first time our Catholic Charities has had a physical office in rural Nevada. Normally, we do mostly outreach, but they look like a grocery store. So when you go in, you get a cart. Everything is on shelves. There's what we sort of call the menu. So depending on your family size, you can pick four of these items from a variety of different options mm. on a shelf or six of these items. But it's not just a box that you're picking up. You really get to control what it is that 
you take, because we want things to be nutritious, but we want them to, people to actually eat them. They have been so well received, especially with our seniors. And a lot of times, this makes my heart very happy. We all have families that come in and their children have no idea they're in a food pantry. Mm. You know, because there's a stigma sometimes associated with poverty that we always look to remove. So when you, you know, you pull up and you get your grocery card and you run through and you get all your stuff and you sort of check out at the end um, and you load your stuff in your car, it's just a different feel. Yeah. And we can't do that on our main campus because we literally don't have a building that's big enough mm. to sustain having a client choice there. Because we'll see almost 300 people a day that go through the main campus. But but it's really, it's it's about humanity and it's about dignity and really trying to make sure that we're elevating people with things that are healthy, but also you know, creating an experience that's very approachable yeah. um, for people who might be really struggling with food insecurity. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the food insecurity as kind of the the root issue of a lot of these things? Like, why is why is food so important? Why is that such a focus? I mean, it's kind of obvious that it's we need it to live. But it's can you talk a little bit more about kind of why and how that forms a core of what you do? So food is something that is so core to us because it's basically what starts a conversation. What you'll find with people who are, you know, struggling, whether it's, you know, truly being at the poverty level or just they're working three jobs and they just can't make ends meet, food is the, has the least stigma to it. People will come in to get a box of food or they'll come in and get a hot meal if that's what they need. Because it's really, it's kind of a no questions asked space, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just come in, you get your, your box, you take it with you and off you go. Our model is a little bit more extended. So for us, we use food as an opportunity, as I said, to start that conversation. So why are you coming in for food? Not to put people on the spot, but it creates that space if it's like, well, my rent went up, or I have a car that you know has broken down, or there's a myriad of different reasons, or I lost my job, or all of a sudden I'm finding myself where we've got additional family members who lost their housing and had to move in with mm. us, and we're you know, trying to, to juggle a lot of different factors. And because Catholic Charities is truly a no-wrong-door, one-stop shop, once people start to have those conversations, and we have trained case managers and, and uh, individuals who work in all of our departments, we can sit down and really deep dive on that and say, okay, well, if that's the case, what other services do we have available or what other services exist in our community that we can help people to address what we call the root causes of poverty so that... They don't need that food basket forever, but that may be what brought them in. And that is what truly makes Catholic Charities unique. There are lots of food pantries and lots of distribution events for food. But again, it's different with us because we really, we don't want to provide food to people forever. We want to actually help them on their journey so that they don't need that food basket. And, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that I truly love about what we do. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of one of the things that I talked to Ben Castro from Rise mm -hmm. and he was talking about what the, the perfect homeless shelter would look like. And he said the perfect homeless shelter is that there's not a homeless shelter because you exactly. solved the root problems of these things. So it's good to hear that there's this kind of holistic idea of how to address things. And that reminds me, you have like a resource center, right, that has all of the different ways to help people. Can you talk a little bit about that resource center model and the idea of the resource center and how you steer people to the services that they need in general? Absolutely. Twofold. One, on our main campus is where our food pantry is. And then what we call our wellness center, which I should tag in, which is non-food basic items. So similar. Mm. So people can get clothing and diapers and toiletries and all those different things. So that's all kind of operating in the what I call like tangible item space to help people meet their basic needs, whether it's for food or just, you know, hygiene or along those lines. Yeah. Um, so then in that same building in the door to the right, 
is what we call the resource hub. And within that space, we have social workers, we have case managers, we have a workforce development team. We're a federal benefits enrollment center. And uh, so individuals can come in and if they need utility assistance because they just can't pay their power bills or if they want to sign up for SNAP, which is basically food stamps, supplemental nutrition assistance program, amongst a variety of different services in there. But then we also have true crisis intervention social workers who, like sometimes people will come in, they're experiencing a domestic violence situation or they have a situation maybe where they're engaged with child protective services and they need parenting classes or they need, you know, whatever that is. Like mm-hmm. we try to say, we we will offer what is available, but we will find what we cannot offer. So it's very individualized. It's very conversation-based, but anyone can come in there, you know, five days a week. Our I call her our air traffic controller, but Pat, who works that front desk, she's just amazing. You know, she does the intake. And she gets them immediately paired up with one of the people in our office. We do a lot of work in the senior space as well for helping seniors. Um, We do home modifications to help seniors stay in their homes. We have immunization programs to help people who, you know, need access to health screenings or, you know, immunizations for them, for their children or for for seniors who, uh, you know, might be struggling with, you know, I need a pneumonia Mm -hmm. vaccination or something like that. So, We try to make that very much a one-stop shop. So if people come in, again, once we get that conversation going, it is walk-in. Anybody can walk into that space and just say, I need help and this is what it is. Mm -hmm. But then we also have campus ambassadors who are sort of wandering around our our property as well as like, so if people are standing in line within our food pantry, you know, they might strike up a conversation Mm -hmm. like, hey, just so you know, you know, this is a... Another department we have, if you'd like to come in, I can introduce you to someone and maybe they can talk with you a little bit about what's going on. We do the same thing in the dining room, Mm -hmm. which tends to be a lot of individuals who are unsheltered or really experiencing homelessness, but not all. And so, again, it's very individualized. We try to sit down, have that conversation. And again, it all stems from that space of humanity. We don't see people as numbers at Catholic Charities. It's not, okay, I fed a thousand people today. Yes, I need to know that so I make sure I have enough food available. Right. But we really know our people who are coming to us and we want them to feel that it's a very approachable space, a very safe space. They will be seen, they will be heard, and we will do what we can to, you know, sort of elevate their situation. We can't solve every problem. I wish we could, but at least we can address those things that are within our scope or at least, you know, sometimes just being heard is so valuable for people. And then that gives them a chance to to move forward. And we have another whole program, which we'll talk about, about helping people move forward in a different capacity. Oh, yeah. And that's that's a new thing that which you're doing that I, I want to hear a lot about. Do so you find that having those conversations with people that are coming back regularly and letting them know that those are available, does sometimes it take time for people to realize the breadth of services that you offer? Because, again, people just have, I think, some basic assumptions about what you do. What's that kind of education piece like about letting people that are there and also like the community at large know this variety of things that you do. So we do a tremendous amount of outreach. And and one thing I should pair that to, even though I know a lot of your listeners are in the Reno area, but when we take our services and our food out to our rural communities, we replicate these same services. So our case managers and our social workers are also out in Elko and Ely and all points in between Battle Mountain, wherever that may be, so that it's not only here locally that that takes place. So Mm -hmm. we're able to have those same conversations and do what we can for people who um, are 
uh, literally across our, our geographic area. And I think that also is an important thing to note. You know, as far as trying to get the word out, much like any other nonprofit, we are grateful when the media, you know, covers stories and we have a great relationship with our local media. Opportunities like being on a podcast where we can talk, you know, more in depth about what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we use a lot of social media, lots of community partnerships. So we actually receive hundreds of referrals from other community partners literally on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like wherever you land in this community, I guarantee you at some point someone's going to say, you know, if you could, let's get you over to Catholic Charities. <laughs> right. You know, even into like discharges from hospital, mm. a lot of times they'll reach out to us or we're just, we are such a large entity and we have such breadth and depth that there is just a lot of collective knowledge of, you know, call them and see what they can do to help. And we're nimble. And I think that is incredible. We have a lot of great funding sources. But because we're so large, we can we can respond quickly to helping with various situations. We even do natural disaster relief. We did all, almost all of the natural disaster relief for all the Northern California fires we've had in the last several years uh. because we can we can mobilize quickly. And one of the other things that we're really good at is we manage stuff. I know that sounds very <laughs> funny, but like when there's a crisis, people always want to donate stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, because we have our massive thrift store network, we have, again, you know, food resources. We have wellness resources. We are really good at handling tangible items and getting them either into the hands of the people who need them or a lot of times, and we are very, you know, we disclose this. If people donate a bunch of stuff, it's never going to be relevant to a particular, you know, crisis situation. When those things get sold in our thrift stores, we will take that cash back and then you know, use it to to shore up different things within mm-hmm. the community. We try to think at things differently and really look at how can we meet the needs of the people in that community, regardless of what that may be, and use our breadth and depth to do that efficiently and effectively. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the thrift store thing, too, because I know that there's, whenever I think about donating clothes, the thing that we always see is, oh, give it to Goodwill. It's a national organization. I don't know how that money stays or doesn't stay in the community. So can you talk a little bit about the thrift store model in general yes. for how people donate things, how much of that stuff goes to directly to people who are in need? And you mentioned that obviously the money from that comes back into the organization. Can you just talk a little bit about thrift stores and donation of goods? Yes. So my, you know, I'm biased, obviously, <laughs> because I, you know, feel very strongly about our Catholic Charities thrift store. But that is an excellent point. Like I always like to ask people, you know, Give to the thrift stores where you know they are having a local impact. I can't speak in depth to the goodwill model, but I can certainly speak to the fact that at Catholic Charities, you know, if you go to any of our donation centers, they're all over the community, 100% of that is going to benefit your neighbors in need and in a variety of different ways. So when I talk about our wellness center, you know, we're providing clothing to people who need clothing, blankets, coats, and this time of year summer wear, apartment kits for people that are moving into apartments, 100% of those items that we give away through our wellness center, they're coming in through our thrift store donations. Mm. So things are sorted into two different, you know, sort of spaces. So things we're going to sell and then things that are going to go directly into our wellness center giveaway. And then on top of that, our thrift store is unique. And many people don't know this. Catholic Charities operates a housing program for men. It's a sober living facility. It's called Battleborn Housing Plus. And we have about 100 beds. And so there are individuals, a lot of them have had a touch with either being in prison or potentially, you know, they've been in jail. 
some of them have been homeless. There's, you know, you can come in from a variety of different spaces. You have to be sober. It's a sober living facility. It's not treatment. So sometimes they're also coming out of, you know, spaces where they've maybe gone through a treatment program. Okay. But when they live at Battleborn, we do a lot of wraparound services in that. And we work with some other entities that do counseling and behavioral health and that. But 100% of the gentlemen who live there, within two weeks of moving in, they work in our thrift stores. It is true mm. social enterprise. So we're helping people that a lot of times have a lot of barriers to employment, particularly if they're coming out of the corrections yeah. area. They're coming in and immediately they have a job. They have a sense of purpose. They're paying rent to live at Battleborn. You know, it's, it's very affordable rent, mm. but it's meant to be your own in this. Like you're owning your recovery. You have to pay your rent. You have to buy your groceries. Through the dining room, we provide one meal a day over at Battleborn. But they have kitchens and they have refrigerators and they cook. And there's a congregate living in the front half of it. And then we have apartments in the back. And then we have some houses on that street. So it's sort of tiered. You can move along. And it is, it's an incredible program. We have people that now, they don't ever want to leave working in our thrift stores. <laughs> they absolutely love it. And they're, these are gentlemen who, I mean, they were struggling at one point in their life, full-time jobs with benefits, giving back. It's just, it is a life-changing program. So the thrift stores, yes, the revenue is literally what keeps our dining room going. It keeps a lot of our programs going. But it also, the, again, it's all about humanity and it's all about the people it's giving people an opportunity that likely would have struggled to re-enter back into society and may have, you know, ended up right back where they started. So I love that program. We have some fun, great people who work over there that are incredibly dedicated. And again, it's not a 100% success story, but it's pretty dramatic, the number of people. And then sometimes, sometimes they're, I call them our boomerangs, but like they'll come in and they're like, I don't know about this. And, you know, they'll kind of work the program for a while and then they leave. And then a lot of times within a month, it's like, can I come back? Because mm. I, I have a different perspective now. And I really like, I could see the value and the benefit of this. So, so yes, please give to Catholic Charities. It is such a life-changing program for literally thousands of people in our community. Yeah. I want to ask you more about the Elevating Families program. Mm -hmm. But first, I always like to learn more about the actual guests on the show. I realized that the show is called Renoites, and frequently in the last handful of episodes or number of episodes, it's been more about the organization and the the community and might have lost a little bit of the focus on the people. So let's talk about you for a minute, Marie. So you've been at Catholic Charities for, what, five years about now? About eight, actually. Eight? Oh, okay. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to be with the organization and kind of what that looked like coming into this role? Absolutely. So so I, I'm a Reno native, born and raised here. My degrees are from, you know, the university, and I have a tremendous passion for Northern Nevada as a whole. And seeing everybody have the opportunity to, you know, sort of live their best life, as I like to say, or have a life that's full of meaning and purpose. And mm -hmm. that that's part of our vision statement, even at Catholic Charities. So um, I actually started my professional career a couple of years ago with, as I was a teacher mm -hmm. in the Washington County School District. And again, that sense of how do you help people grow and have a meaningful and purposeful life? And that has always been core to my being. Through a very chance meeting while I was in graduate school at the university, I got connected with Bob and Jan Davidson. And my field of study is actually in early college entrance programs for highly gifted children. And so they started the Davidson Institute, which some of your listeners may be familiar with, which is a nonprofit that really supports True child prodigies and the Davidson Academy, which exists at the university, is sort of a mechanism of that. But 
again, helping people grow with their strengths. And mm. that's, you know, core. So they hired me. They were starting their nonprofit. We started five national programs, did some incredible work in that space, and they're still going strong. And I fell in love with nonprofit work is what it boils down to. And really looking at how how do you impact change within the community and give people opportunities. So um, I've worked at a couple of nonprofits over my career, and I really was truly through what I consider some divine intervention, given the opportunity to come to Catholic Charities. I've always been a like a CEO or an executive director, but I also have certifications in fundraising. Like I really know how to build capacity with the nonprofits. So I ended up at Catholic Charities, and and I'm so grateful. I have a background in addition in a previous nonprofit I worked at and working with a lot of foster youth who were aging out of foster care and looking at what happens to individuals whose lives are disrupted when they are younger mm. and and what does that look like when they're adults? And that was part of what sort of drew me into the to the Catholic Charities parts of things. But during my tenure while I have been there, we've really refined what our services are and really tried to focus on making substantial change in people's lives, which I absolutely love. But but no, I've always worked in the nonprofit industry mm. and and I love it. And I, I you know love to encourage people, don't start a nonprofit, please. There's like <laughs> a thousand of them. But if you have a passion for this work, volunteer with a nonprofit. Or if you want to make it your career, find employment within the nonprofit world. It is so incredibly rewarding. And particularly at the the sort of executive level on a nonprofit of the scale of Catholic Charities, it's so complex. Like it is just incredibly rewarding and satisfying to do this kind of work that has a, a true impact on people, but also is just very, very challenging and very just inspiring in its own way. Yeah. How, what's the real major differences between working kind of like a CEO executive type role in the nonprofit world versus for-profit, you know, those industries? So I've never worked in the for-profit, but I've had a lot of, particularly CFOs that I've worked with that have come out of the for-profit world. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget this quote because I, I had a CFO a couple of years ago. He's like, nonprofits are sort of like bumblebees. You know, like bumblebees, like the physics of a bumblebee is it should absolutely not be able to fly. And he's like, how do you run? We have about an $11 million budget. He's like, how do you run an $11 million organization with close to 200 employees and you really have no control over your revenue stream because it's individuals, it's corporations, it's foundations, it's government grants that renew once a year or every two years. Mm -hmm. And they change because things are happening at the federal level. And yet you're 80 years in to this sustainable program and you have very little control over your revenue. And it's truly it is. It's like how, how do bumblebees fly? And I think that's one of the things that makes it rewarding. Again, I love fundraising because I love connecting people who care about our mission and our vision and our cause with the opportunities to invest in that. But it is, it's stressful. And, uh, and certainly during the pandemic, you know, we never closed. We were, we were an essential business mm -hmm. and, you know, we were all sort of sweating the, okay, well, the thrift store is closed and, uh, you know, how are we going to do this? And just the incredible generosity of our community really is what made it sustainable. But it was during that time, he's like, you can't just raise the price on something. Like, there's no widget that we're right. selling or no <laughs> service that we're selling because everything is available, you know, at no cost to people. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, what I think the primary difference is, is you have to be excellent stewards of your donors. You have to make sure that they're fully engaged and that they're part of your team. Mm -hmm. And you can't 
just raise your prices and able to make a difference. Yeah. You were at the Reno Rodeo for a long time too, Yeah, right? for 10 years, which yeah. was a blast. Were you, were you a rodeo person? How did you come to work in the rodeo and what was that like? So it's kind of interesting how, yes, I was, yeah, we had a, a horse ranch here when I grew up. I had horses my whole life until just a few years ago when I had children and I decided that, you know, I could only have one or the other and I really love my kids. So the horses had to go. <laughs> and at that point, but yeah, I worked for the Reno Rodeo for 10 years. And again, that was kind of a, a crazy fluke. After I left the Davidson um, Institute, I was doing, was working in, working on my PhD and some different space in there. And they were just looking for somebody very part-time to come in and, you know, kind of structure their nonprofit. And uh, I was like, well, that'll be a fun, just something to do. Well, you know, about a year into it, I'm full-time. We've launched all these crazy programs. That's where I was working with the Aging Out Foster Youth. I brought in some major mm. donors and we were running a lot of programming. We built buildings for children who were in foster care, the Kids Campus Activity Center over next to the Kids Cottage. That was a building that the Reno Rodeo Foundation built so that there would be an indoor, like there's a gym and there's some classrooms and and space there for the children who were living at the kids' cottage who were all awaiting placement in foster care, essentially, or to be reunited with their parents. And uh, so we just had a great time. But yes, I have a lot of, even though I wrote a lot of hunter jumpers, I really have a tremendous passion for rodeo. And I think the thing about rodeo in general and, and the Reno rodeo is it is truly about like they take the proceeds from the rodeo and they invest them back into children hmm. and into scholarships and to improving our community. And there's just, there's an element to sort of the cowboy code of conduct or code of ethics that is very much about community and about humanity and about, you know, giving someone a hand up when they're really struggling. So that's what resonated with me in addition to, yes, it is super fun to just go to the rodeo. <laughs> And, and it's 100% operated by volunteers. They only have like three or four staff uh, that work for the Reno Rodeo Association, and then the foundation was a separate entity, and I was the only person there for 10 years. So it's these volunteers who give back to put on this great event, but then the other 355 days of the year, we were making a difference with literacy programs and rodeo wishes and scholarships, and all, all the money was distributed back out to other nonprofits. Like mm -hmm. they had grants that we did, and obviously running program for foster youth who were aging out to give them some different perspective on life. It's a great entity. And, uh, and I had a great 10 years there and it was fun. And that actually was how I ended up sort of transitioning into a larger role. I spent a year at the Eddie House when it was transitioning from being just their residential program, helping them put in an infrastructure mm. of, you know, the nonprofit's business infrastructure. Right. And, and then that's how I ended up at Catholic Charities. But it was actually through the Rodeo Foundation and the partners that I had brought in that I ended up, you know, moving through this journey, which was fabulous. Awesome. Yeah. Back to the Catholic Charities work you're doing now. I want to talk about this. What's it called? Elevating Families. Yes. Elevating Families program that's, that's new and is focused on, it kind of, you can tell me more about it, but it's a, a whole series of different types of supports for families, right? For more economic mobility and stability. So can you kind of outline what this program is and how it, how it works? So I think this is one of the most exciting things to come to our community, to Washoe County as a whole. So several years ago, as I've mentioned, like we really started conversations at our board level, you know, with our senior leadership and with our staff and with our clients and said, okay, we recognize that these root causes of poverty and that we're seeing people that continue to return to Catholic charities pretty regularly, especially families. 
what could we do to actually interrupt generational poverty? So that if we said, okay, we're going to work with this family in this capacity, what if that child or that family was the very last one in their family to live in poverty? And we set that as a goal for our agency. We started to develop sort of our own programs. We ended up getting engaged with the University of Notre Dame. They have a a program there. It's called LEO, Lab for Economic Opportunity. It's in their economics department where they study poverty and they study programs that actually, as I say, interrupt poverty or end poverty within certain segments. And so they select a couple of entities around the country, you know, every couple of years to engage in a true research study. And so we approached them and said, we want to do something in the Reno Sparks community. What might that look like? And so, and you know, here's our ideas. And they said, here's our ideas. Well, they accepted us into this. So we've spent two years designing this program, which is now Elevating Families. And traditional case management is very much like, okay, when somebody walks through my door in the resource hub, I'm like, okay, you know, here's some ideas. Here's what you should do here. Let's get you a resume. Let's get you a job. Let's get you all these things. It's very much driven by the sort of the agency has the answers or the professionals have the answers. Mm -hmm. Elevating families completely turns that around and says, what if we are just listeners and we are people who ask questions? And it's actually based upon a model that came out of Boston called Empath Economic Mobility Pathways that was based on some very specific research on how if you're living in poverty for generation after generation, it actually changes the way that your brain works. So your limbic brain, you know, that fight or flight really becomes very strong. And the part where you have very fluid executive functioning skills, that part of your brain just doesn't, it, there's so much cortisol in there, like it just doesn't function the same. And it just happens generation after generation. And so when we're asking people to sort of solve challenges in their lives, sometimes it's just, it's, it's different in how their brain is working. So this model is based upon how do you help to rebuild those neural sort of pathways in the brain that are more fluid thinking and more able to see problems and work through problems and not just get hindered by that fight or flight response mm -hmm. because you're living in survival mode when you're, how am I going to feed my kids? How am I going to pay my rent? So it's a totally unique method. There's a rating chart across different domains that individuals who are in the program sort of circle where they think they are. And then it's just a series of questions like, okay, which of these is most important to you? Okay, well, I think this, I want to work on building a healthy relationship with my children. Okay, so what would that look like for you? And then you start to document this in very specific goals and very specific steps. Like what barriers might you might see? Well, you know, my children don't like to spend time with me. I mean, I'm being sort of flipped, but okay, well then what would they like to do with you? And so you never give someone the answer. It's not like, well, here's what I think you should do. Mm -hmm. It's just question after question. And it changes this whole dynamic of how people start to see themselves. And of course you start with small goals and then they build in incentives for themselves, which is great. Because for a lot of people living in poverty, taking your children out to a restaurant for dinner is so far beyond their reality. But it's like, wow, okay, well, if I complete this goal and I'm successful, I get to take my kids out to dinner. So, and, and they pick that. We don't pick what their incentives are. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I want to go, you know, just have ice cream or do something. 
And so it creates this dynamic where they're fully empowered. They're fully taking control of where they want to go, but with this very intense sort of wraparound and coaching. Mm -hmm. So there's, you don't feel like you're sort of doing it alone or when it gets hard, you know, life's hard. You have that space where you can lean in and be like, okay, this is what I'm struggling with. And you can talk it back out. They've used this model in a couple of different places around the country and seen just incredible results. And that's where we're going with it. So we're engaged in a research study on this, but really our role in that is operating this incredible program. And it is, we did a pilot, which was very successful, but the actual true Elevating Families program started in October. So we need to have 600 individuals who will engage in the program. It is a random draw, whether you are selected into receiving this specialized mentoring versus sort of our regular services at Catholic Charities. So mm -hmm. it's not like you don't get anything. Just half people will get this highly specialized you know, opportunity first so we can do some comparative analysis of, did this work? And the individuals who are coming in, they because of the nature of, the, of making sure that we're looking at, it, does this method work in our community? They have to be, the parent participants have to be 50 years or younger, have at least one child who's in fifth grade or younger, or they can be pregnant. But they can be couples, they can be individuals, they can be single moms, single dads, and they can be married, they can just be in a relationship, and they have to live in Washoe County because of the way that the, the study is, is structured. And then they have to, because it's a poverty mitigation study, they have to be able to work because part of what the program looks at is how do we help people have really long-term, um, healthy, sustainable employment? So that that, I mean, that's that's sort of key, right? To being yeah. able to say, I'm no longer living at the poverty level, you have to increase your income. So we're addressing all these issues and barriers and things that to that. But one of the main things that we're looking at is how are we getting people um, so they're not having to work three jobs. Maybe they have one really good job and then they have benefits and then they're you know able to grow within what that job is. Do they need education? Do they need support? What does that look like? And mm -hmm. again, we're not driving that train. We're facilitating the conversations to help people get there. Yeah. So it's it's just incredible. And we're very excited about um, seeing where it goes mm -hmm. and seeing if it affects change in our community in the long run. And if this isn't the method, then we'll need to look at what is because we're really committed to that. How do we help people move out of poverty? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the, the mobility thing is a big part of it, that people get stuck in a certain economic status or economic level that is really hard to break out of. And I think that's broadly, you know, in our society, a problem where if you're born into poverty, you likely stay in poverty. And having that focus on being able to to move that mobility is kind of key. And it's good to hear that there's a focus on not just helping people stay where they're at, but giving them kind of like the the tools to to actually to move. It's amazing. In Boston where they originated this model they did it in a shelter. It was a women's shelter, single moms and children, 100% who were homeless. And within five years, some of them had raised their income 168%. They'd raised their credit score. They had money and savings. And some of them were first-time homebuyers. Mm. This model works. It's work. Like people have to be engaged and you know put in the time. But it really does change opportunities for individuals who, again, might be multi-generational, might have never even thought this was possible for them. And uh, and so, you know, to your listeners, I sort of put out that call to action if it's something that resonates with them. But if not, if it's not maybe resonating with them as like, I need this, look at your neighbors. Look at who's sitting next to you, you know, when you're at different 
community spaces or, you know, if they're a part of a faith-based community, there might be other people that share this like, hey, I heard this interesting, you know, opportunity that Catholic Charities is making available. You might want to check it out mm. because they're there are a lot more people who are coming in to Catholic Charities as a whole and coming into elevating families that are truly the people that are our coworkers, that are our neighbors. It's not sort of the the face that I think a lot of people in their mind associate with who is barely getting by. Mm. It really is probably more of the people in everyone's circle than they realize. And uh, and I think that's, you know, sort of important to note that Again, no stigma in reaching out for wanting a better life for yourself and your children. Yeah, that was my next question is this kind of the visibility of different types of poverty. And I think that the conversation that we see a lot right now is about homelessness and people living outdoors, Mm -hmm. people living on the street, the very highly visible poverty. But there are a lot of people who are struggling who you might not realize. And part of that, again, is this stigma where people might not want to reveal what's going on in their lives economically or ask for help. I think there's also just kind of this cultural aversion to asking for help sometimes or very kind of individualistic society. So can you talk a little bit about bringing in people who might not inherently think that it is for them or they might not be comfortable asking for help or they might not even realize, you know, I think people who are in poverty realize that they're in poverty, but they might not realize that these services are are for them too. Can you talk just a little bit about that difference between the highly visible poverty and the kind of hidden poverty? Absolutely. And I there is truly what I consider to be sort of an epidemic of that hidden poverty. When you're mentioning individuals who are unsheltered or experiencing homelessness, yes, immediately, you know, when you say that you envision individuals who are living in tents or the individuals who are in a shelter situation. But what we see the largest sort of population of people that are struggling the most with really even what we would consider homelessness is the number of people living in their cars, the number of people who are multiple families living in an apartment, which may or may not be particularly stable housing. We used to see a lot more people living in different kinds of weekly motels. A lot of that has changed in, you know, in terms of where people are living. But there's those are children oftentimes. And the biggest silent epidemic population that we're seeing right now are seniors. There are more seniors getting evicted in our community than any other population. And they're ending up in the shelter. We do rental assistance. We had some phenomenal post-COVID grants and we did almost a million dollars in rental assistance. And that was federal money and it's gone. And it's heart-wrenching to me because there's no there's no backfill there for us. Like we mm-hmm. still do rental assistance, but not at that side. But the majority of the people who were coming in were seniors. Their rents were going up, sometimes doubling from, you know, 600 to 1,200 or 800 to 1,600 or some percentage in between. These are people living on fixed incomes. A lot of times they might have a, a roommate or a spouse who passes away, so they lose half their, half their fixed income goes mm-hmm. away immediately. Then, you know, they have medication and they have a variety of different needs. They could be homebound. So the seniors are truly sort of the the silent population of people who are struggling with poverty the most, um, and especially because, like I said, they're not, they're not, their children aren't in school where the school is saying, okay, there's something going on here. Let's have a school-based intervention mm-hmm. or let's involve other wraparound services because they're, they're more visible. And, you know, even when you look to it, a lot of the 
yes, we have an affordable housing crisis, without a doubt, and, and I'm a big champion of trying to address that. But even within a lot of the housing we have, a lot of that housing is 50, 60, 70 years old now. You know, when you look particularly in Sun Valley, where we have an actual office out there, a lot of those modular homes, they are old. So yes, people might own them and they might live in them and they're not considered to be unsheltered, but their circumstances are dire because their roofs are leaking mm-hmm. or, you know, they're, they have sewer issues or, you know, a variety of different issues. Um, and they don't have they don't have necessarily, even if they're working or they have a family, the money to be able to, you know, even address getting their home back into a state that might be more livable. So the poverty comes in a lot of different forms and creates a lot of different stressors. But as I mentioned, the majority of the people that we see, particularly in the food pantry, they are working families who are working multiple jobs, you know, and they still are just barely getting by. I want to go back to the Battleborn housing mm-hmm. program they have too, because I think you mentioned affordable housing is a big issue. Sometimes there are not places to go when people need a place to live. So, you know, housing is kind of the root of a lot of these poverty issues. Can you talk a little bit more about the housing programs that you mm-hmm. do and how you help people have a roof over their head? So we we used to operate our housing as just sort of, you know, regular rentals. And what we were finding, because a lot of those buildings we have, as I mentioned, are congregate. So people aren't always super excited about living with a bunch of strangers and sharing rooms and sharing kitchens and sharing bathrooms, which I completely respect. Several years ago, we said, let's make this a program that has housing with it. And it's really, as I mentioned, been incredibly successful. Individuals who come in to Battleborn, they're receiving all the wrapping around services. There's case management within that. There's behavioral health support, which again, that between affordable housing and mental health. Those are some of our largest needs in our community, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, different sobriety, long-term sobriety support services that go along with that. And then, you know, the housing is is a component of that. And it's, people can stay there as long as they need the support. It's a tiered system. So you sort of start where things are, you know, very intense and you have a certain amount of classes and things that you're going to. And obviously, as I mentioned, they are working in our thrift stores. Mm-hmm. And then as they sort of progress and become more um, independent, then they can move into different spaces, but they don't have to leave. And we've had some very long-term residents there. And I think that's permanent supportive housing, I think is really important when you talk about affordable housing is we can make housing available, but for a lot of people, especially people who maybe have been in poverty for a very long time or have, you know, different kinds of health issues, whether they're physical health or mental health, you know, whatever that may be, having those wraparound services is as important as having the physical space Mm -hmm. to their long-term success in housing. I find it's really challenging if you don't have that for individuals for a variety of reasons. And then I also think you need to couple that with making sure that it has a good social structure. Human beings are social animals and you want to make sure that there's a sense of community. And that's another part about Battleborn. You know, we use a lot of peer support specialists as part of that program and they really form a community. And uh, so that when they are ready to move on and maybe, they, you know, find their own apartment or they're ready to move on to a different job, whether they're still living on our property or not. They have that base Mm. where they can come back and lean in on each other when times are hard um, and also have space to celebrate their successes with people who have a lot of shared experience. So to me, when you're talking about housing, I think looking at 
permanent supportive housing or housing with a lot of wraparound is just as important as you know, just providing the physical structure for people. Yeah. And I think the word permanent is an important part of that because mm-hmm. I think there tends to be sometimes this idea that the idea is giving the temporary help that people can graduate out of and then and then go away. But some people, a lot of people need something that will go with them that is permanent. And I mean, that means that means permanent, yeah. right? It's checking in and and yeah, it can be tiered. Like it might be an intensive check-in at the beginning, but then you know, as people gain more confidence and it's like, okay, we'll check in with you once a month or once a quarter. But for people to know they have that space that when they're starting to, you know, get anxious or, you know, like, oh my gosh, it's like, oh, okay, well, I can call this person from Catholic Charities or some of the other amazing organizations in town. We certainly are grateful for all the partners that look at at housing and supporting people within housing because it's clearly not just us. And we actually are a very, very small fish in the housing pond. But it's just having that person that you can lean back on. Um, and again, it's sometimes it's someone from an agency and sometimes it's just a peer or, you know, or having a good roommate that you can, you can trust and you formed a relationship with that maybe you, you know, are, are going on together. So, so I'm, a, I'm a big champion of, of looking at housing as a continuum and, uh, and making sure, again, we're meeting people where they are. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about the sobriety element of a lot of these housing systems? Because I know a lot of times there's a need for low barrier housing, right? There needs to be a place that anyone can go to. But I think there also does need to be sober housing for people who are sober and trying to stay sober. So can you talk a little bit about that element of the housing that you do and why the sobriety is an important part? Absolutely. So yes, again, as I was saying, like, we need a continuum of housing. There's no one size fits all housing model. We opted to go into that space where we're really focused on the sober part of that. And some of that is because we are seeing, again, people who are coming out of the various departments within the world of corrections. And they, a lot of times for, from a parole and probation standpoint, sobriety is part of what they, they need to maintain. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to create that space where this was a good wraparound housing for individuals who are, they're required, you know, to, to maintain their sobriety so that they can continue to work on toward their future. In our case with the sober living is it also gives a lot of sort of safety and security. So our individuals that live with us, they have to do a breathalyzer test twice a day, 365 days a year. So in the morning and the evening, and then we also do actual drug testing, urine drug testing three times a week with a random fourth. And what we hear from a lot of our residents is it's, it's sort of like Jiminy Cricket, right? It's your conscience. So like when you're having that moment of struggle, because addiction is a permanent disease, you know, and it's a choice every day that you make to stay in recovery. So knowing that sometimes having that like, okay, I'm going to be tested and someone's going to give me a little bit of external accountability, it helps them with that structure that a lot of them really need, especially toward the beginning of their recovery process. And then when you're, again, pairing that with the peer support that goes on, like, hey, I've been there, you know, hang in there. Let's, you know, let's go to a meeting. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out when you're, when those voices in your head are getting really loud, how do we help you, you know, quiet them so that you can hear the voices that are going to help you with your long-term success in being sober? And I, I like that part because it's very empowering. It's not meant to be punitive in any way. It's empowering. It's like, oh, you know, how many days sober have I made it? And I, our particular layout of this complex that we have just lends itself really well to sober living as well. Because like I said, it's kind of a funky 
a little property where, you know, they're all living together like in a dorm in the front and then, you know, getting to move into those spaces in the back when they're a little bit more independent. And again, in that continuum, yes, there's absolutely a space for housing first. There's, uh, you know, all the way through the continuum of that permanent support of low-income housing that uh, we have some amazing apartment complexes in our community that they're not called the Community Housing Resource Board anymore. They have a different name. But they, you know, they build these beautiful complexes and they provide some wraparound services, but they, you know, they're basically just low-income housing and and everything in between from a zero-barrier shelter, you know, like Cares Campus or our place, you know, or whatever, Eddie House, whatever those may be, to be able to really meet people where they are and help them move in a positive direction, you've got to have them all. We just knew that our niche just happened to be falling into that sober living and and it kind of came to us, actually, Washoe County had approached us originally and said, hey, we want to try this experiment. Can we utilize your facility? They have since moved on to a different building, but we just found that this really works for us. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to be that little segment of this larger continuum and recognize that we need an expansion in that larger continuum. Yeah. Since you've been at Catholic Charities, especially in the last handful of years, we've had a lot of changes in the way that we deal with poverty, especially with homelessness in the area. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. You mentioned COVID. Obviously, that was a huge challenge for everyone, but I think especially people living in poverty because services were more limited. All of those kind of things were, I'm sure, a huge challenge. And the other thing that came out during the COVID pandemic was the opening of the CARES campus and this different approach of the large-scale shelter that has you know, some people like that model. There's criticisms of that model. I know that the Record Street shelter was right next to the Catholic Charities, right in the same neighborhood. And now it's a bit further down the road. So can you talk a little bit about how those changes in the last handful of years about how the region is dealing with homelessness have affected how you provide services? So it's a work in progress. You know, I think I think the leadership, particularly at Washoe County, is really committed to trying to create a a really positive experience with a lot of different options for individuals who are experiencing homelessness from, you know, the the shelter, again, it, they just sort of popped it up in the middle of the pandemic. And keeping in mind that at that time, most people were actually living in the Reno Event Center. Mm-hmm. So when the pandemic first went down, they're actually, they formed an ad hoc coalition of which we were a part of that we literally were talking every single week about, okay, now that people are sheltering in place and they're homebound, if you're homeless, this is a serious problem. The original record suite, you know, shelter, not only did it not have enough capacity, but I don't know if you were ever in it, but like the bunk beds were super close together. Like there was no way you were going to have people six feet apart and, you know, all those different things that we were, protocols that we were attempting to follow. Yeah. So they opened up the Reno Event Center and they had everybody sort of spread out. And and one of their biggest challenges that they had, honestly, was food services. And so, you know, that was, again, as I mentioned, Catholic Charities is very nimble and we will respond on a dime. So we stepped into that coalition and said, look, our biggest contribution we can do right now is to provide all the meals. So we were doing, we went from just doing lunch, which is what we've done into, for 60 years, to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, 100% at our own expense. And we were very fortunate. We had some great donors. The, there was a lot of CARES Act dollars at the time that allowed us to purchase some hot and cold delivery trucks. So then you sort of fast forward about six months later, and they pop up the sprung form two and a half miles down the street from us. And we said, look, we will continue to provide the food. 
as a donation to Washoe County. And uh, because that is really, again, kind of, you know, our core, one of our cores. Yeah. We are the public meal provider by land use, which I won't bore you with the details on that, but we really are the shelter food provider in our community for decades. We actually, to this day, are continuing to provide just lunch and dinner to the to the CARES campus. The Reno Sparks Gospel Mission actually provides a meal to the CARES campus as well. But the reason that they were not engaged in that, particularly during the, the pandemic side of things, is they're actually a church. They're not a 501c3. So they couldn't receive any government funding. Mm. And so they, like, we were able to take the funds that were available for crisis intervention and they were not. And so we said, look, well, we don't want this to tax you. Like, this is not reasonable. We will take over. But then once everything reopened, they were able to return to still providing the breakfast and all of that. So okay. um, that actually, I'd like to point that out to people why we sort of stepped in and then said, oh, but not trying to step on their toes. Mm-hmm. So we still provide all the food services in that. And then we also, it is a, as I say, we try to stave at being a super highway up and down 4th Street between Catholic Charities and the shelter. Even though our dining room is open at the corner of 4th and Valley for lunch every day, we deliver, it's about 900 meals a day to the shelter. So we deliver at lunch, and then we only provide our dinner service in the shelter. We don't serve on our campus so that we could try to, especially in the night and when it's dark and cold, we don't want people walking down to Catholic Charities to get a meal. Right. So we serve them you know, where they are safely, not walking down a dark street in the ice. And then on top of that, our wellness services, where we have the blankets and coats and all those things, on Wednesdays, we actually truck all of that down to the CARES campus as well. And then their social workers will also come down if particularly like apartment kits or things if people are transitioning into some form of housing. So we try to do as much sort of collaboration on the campus as possible. And then Similar with our place, they uh, they have such a different business model. They have kitchens and they have apartments, and they're actually more like we are at Battleborn, right? Like they don't need as much like delivered options, so right. we make that available. But honestly, they don't really need it from us. So it's it's an option that they have. But what we hear from them is kind of our model works for us. We mm-hmm. don't need as much outside. But interestingly enough, a lot of our elevating families participants are coming from our place, huh. and then we still see. I mean. A lot of people who are experiencing homelessness still come to Catholic Charities, particularly into Resource Hub when they're looking for resources. They have their own case management, but a lot of them have long-term relationships with us, Mm -hmm. people that might be living in the shelter. And then the shelter also, it is a zero-barrier shelter, but they also have rules. And when people don't follow the shelter rules, they are not allowed to go back to the shelter for periods of time. Well, the only place that they literally have to turn is Catholic Charities. And so we see a lot of people that either are they're choosing to live on the streets because they don't want to be a part of the shelter system, or they had a not-so-great experience with the shelter system for whatever reason, and they're not living there. And so like that, I say when we have the dining room open at lunch, that most of the people who are coming into the dining room are people who are truly unsheltered and are not part of the shelter system. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, too, that's also very weather-dependent. Individuals who seek shelter versus the ones that don't seek shelter, a lot of that is very weather-dependent. Like, when it was super cold last week, we had practically nobody in the dining room. But we were increasing our deliveries down to right. the shelter because they do run a 24-hour warming center. They do have overflow beds. So individuals were 
wisely going there to get out of the elements, Mm -hmm. even if they didn't opt into staying in the shelter in a more permanent way. So it's a dynamic. I don't think there's a perfect solution by any stretch of the imagination. I honestly think until we put in really significant mental health and substance use programming within our community, it's going to be a struggle. The needs of individuals experiencing homelessness are far greater than just needing shelter. Mm. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about the work that you're doing at Catholic Charities or the programs that you offer? I feel like you covered a lot of stuff. We're such a diverse agency. You know, I really, I feel like we've covered, you know, a lot of it. But one thing I like to say about us is we really know our lane and we really try to do what we do well. And, you know, we'll look at what gaps are within the community. But we firmly believe in partnerships and knowing what others are doing well and collaborating with them and making sure that we're connecting people with the other entities that are doing great work. And yes, please, you know, I always like to encourage people, please support our thrift stores, please support our Catholic charities. We're serving a multitude of people and we cannot do that without the support of the community as volunteers, as donors, and likewise. So uh, we're just grateful that uh, people choose us as their partner in helping those in need. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about it. It was great to learn more about all of the things that you do. Again, I find that on this show, very often with guests, I'm vaguely familiar with what they do. And then getting to have a full conversation about all of these things really is enlightening about the the impact that that people and organizations have. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for coming on the show to talk about it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This was absolutely just a wonderful experience. Folks, that's not all. There was actually a couple more questions and a little bit more to this interview. That is available for folks who support the show on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash renoites. Here's a little peek of the extra content from this episode. Like I mentioned, I think before we were recording, we have like a pretty robust local media, including a lot of independent media. And sometimes the, the conversation and the narrative about how we're dealing with homelessness can be very contentious and a lot of disagreement in what we're doing right, what is actually happening versus the way that we talk about things. Can you talk a little bit about how we communicate about what's actually happening and, and what you see from the the public awareness or the local media about these issues and whether we're doing a good job as local media, whether we're getting accurate information out? What's your take on how we're communicating about all these things in general? I think for the most part, there's there's good information available. And again, I think it's because we do have a, a pretty diverse, you know, set of voices within the media. So, you know, there are certainly some of our media outlets that really try to capture the, the voice of the individuals who are experiencing homelessness. And then there's segments of our media that look more at sort of statistics or what you might see in terms of comparative to national averages or comparative to other communities. And there's lots of good information out there and it you know it falls back upon you know the listener or the con- the consumer of that media to really look at all the different sources to paint that broader picture i think if you only look at one source or you know that's with anything whether it's homelessness or any other topic if you only look at one source i think sometimes that you may not get the full picture but there is a lot of attention on people who are experiencing homelessness. And I think the biggest thing is these are individuals. These are people. This is somebody's mother or father or brother or sister or child or, you know, there's there's a whole chain of events that happen in someone's life before they end up experiencing homelessness. And some of that can start when they're children. 
you know, in terms of childhood trauma, all the way through mental health, substance use, a variety of different issues with that. And so I think that is the, in terms of sort of like advice to the media, mm-hmm. is the humanity. Look at the people. Listeners, thank you as always for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And of course, special thanks to my guest, Murray Baxter from Catholic Charities of Northern Nevada. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and tell us about the work that you are doing over at Catholic Charities. There's a few more questions, and you can listen to the entire extra segment on my Patreon at patreon.com slash renoites. Whether you're a member or not, check that out. You can learn more about how to support the show and get a little bit more out of every episode. Next week on the show, I am excited to welcome Chef Jonathan Chapin. You might know him from KOLO's morning show. He is their resident chef with Katie Rochetteco on morning break and doing a lot of work raising money for nonprofits. He has his own live Facebook show and he partners with a lot of nonprofits to raise money by doing live cooking shows and has a really fascinating story about the challenges that he's gone through in his life and coming out on the other side of some really difficult situations. It was great to have him on the show. We've been talking about it for a very long time, and I'm excited to share that episode with you next Tuesday. There's new episodes of the show every Tuesday, so make sure that you subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Wherever you get podcasts, there's probably a subscribe button. If you press that, make sure you don't miss an episode. And again, tell people about the show. Spread the word. My hope is really to grow the audience in 2024. I've had so many great guests, and I want to share it with as many people as possible. So... Tell your friends, tell your family, share those posts on social media. makes a huge difference. Really appreciate you doing that. And be sure to tag me so that I can, you know, say thank you. That's all I've got for you this week. See you next time.